As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. I have a rule on my YouTube videos that I never go over 30 minutes. It forces me to edit myself and prevents losing the audience's attention. Usually, I'm just cutting out unnecessary words and tangents that might be out of scope. But sometimes, really interesting information hits the cutting room floor. That was the case in this episode, where there was so much fascinating ground to cover. And some of it I thought might be a bit too racy to stay monetized on YouTube. But I've preserved the best tidbits that didn't make the YouTube video and restored them in this uncut podcast on the history of drag. And so, without further ado. A History of Drag Drag, exaggerated gender expression often involving cross-dressing and performed in the context of entertainment, has been part of many cultures for thousands of years. It was born in response to religious misogyny and continued in that vein through the rise of theater. But once women were allowed on stage, drag lived on because it also serves many other important purposes, including self-expression and subverting traditional gender norms. Drag has been at the heart or on the fringes of every major development in entertainment, and it has had an outsized influence on fashion, language, and culture. So put on whatever makes you feel most fabulous, be it a decadent gown and wig, a bespoke tuxedo and tails, or something we've never seen before. As we sashay through the history of drag and meet many marvelous drag queens and kings along the way. A note on pronouns. As many people in the past did not have the same gender terminology we do today, I will, whenever possible, refer to people as they refer to themselves. Men dressing as women in theater dates back to the birth of theater itself. In ancient Greece, worshippers of Dionysus, the god of wine, fertility, and ecstasy, held annual religious festivals. As a statue of the god was carried into the city, his worshippers danced and sang about his greatness. In the 6th century BCE, an adherent named Thespis stepped out of the chorus and acted out the legend of Dionysus. 
Thespis is considered the first actor, and he gave us the term thespian. This new form of entertainment spread quickly, but most in the Dionysus cult were women. Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, was a famous member of the cult. And the men in power feared that seeing the female form on stage would whip the audience into lustful madness. What's more, it was believed that a woman's place was in the home, her only ambitions, marriage and motherhood, concepts at odds with a career as an actress. Female characters were still part of Greek mythology, if nothing more than to be the objects of desire for male characters. So female characters were played by adolescent boys who didn't yet have beards and could more easily attain the ideals of feminine beauty. This practice of banning women and giving female roles to young men dominated the development of theatre in the West for the next 2,000 years. But the role reversal wasn't always played straight. In the 2nd century BCE, Roman playwright Plautus included a scene in which King Menaikmus puts on his wife's dress and asks a friend to tell me I'm gorgeous. In ancient China, women performed male roles from the 600s until they too were banned from theater in 1722. In medieval Europe, Christian ideals of female chastity continued to keep women off the stage. Morality plays based on biblical stories and the lives of saints were regularly performed by troops of traveling actors made up entirely of men. In England, they were called mummers. Unlike the Greek and Romans, actors playing women's roles were not always going for feminine realness. Adult men with full beards wore oversized bosoms and gaudy makeup for comic effect. Characters like Buxom Nell, Dame Dolly, and Mrs. Clagged Arse became fixtures of mummers' plays. This tradition has existed in British comedy ever since. In the English countryside, Plough Monday, the first day back to work after the 12 days of Christmas, has long been a community celebration. It traditionally includes local performers in the wooing play or bridal play. The storyline involves two female characters, Lady Bright and Gay and Old Dame Jane, both played by men in drag who have a dispute over a child. Another drag character called Bessie accompanies local men who haul a plow around town. Bessie holds the collection box to gather money for the community. Women first gained prominence on stage during the Italian Renaissance. The first recorded professional actress in Europe was Lucretia de Siena, who signed a contract with the theater Commedia dell'arte in 1564. Lucretia and other actresses also worked as courtesans, refined and well-educated sex workers who catered to noble and wealthy clients. If a woman couldn't marry well, sex work was virtually her only option for earning a living. Catholic authorities were not happy. Pope Clement XI said, A beautiful woman who sings on stage and keeps her chastity is like a man leaping into the Tiber River and keeping his feet dry. The Vatican continued to ban female performers. In 1558, soprano parts in the Sistine Chapel Choir were performed by castrati, males who had been castrated before puberty, so their larynx never fully developed. Italian acting troops toured throughout Europe, but they were not welcomed in England, where women continued to be banned from the stage for another century. 
women at the English royal court were allowed to perform in masks, but their roles were usually silent and consisted of dancing and looking pretty. English theatre flourished in the 1500s thanks to the likes of William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, and Ben Jonson. Shakespeare's iconic female characters, including Juliet, Lady Macbeth, and Ophelia, were all played by adolescent boys in wigs, dresses, and makeup. Some actors became famous for their feminine interpretations and mannerisms. Shakespeare used this convention to enrich the gender confusion in As You Like It, in which the character of Rosalind, a woman, played by a boy, dressed as a man. Ben Jonson did the same in Epic Queen, in which a man is conned into marrying a boy dressed as a woman. There is a legend that the word drag emerged in Shakespeare's time as an acronym for dress as a girl, but the term more likely came into use in the 1800s and refers to the way women's gowns drag across the stage. While cross-dressing was acceptable on stage, it was demonized in other contexts. Men were hanged if found guilty of engaging in homosexual activities, including cross-dressing. Women didn't suffer such penalties as authorities didn't believe female homosexuality existed. Mary Frith was assigned female when he was born in London in 1584, but as much as he was able to, he lived as a man. Mary wore a doublet and baggy breeches, smoked a pipe, and swore, activities considered acceptable only for men. He took to the stage, played the lute, and performed body songs and bantered with the audience. But Mary was frequently severely punished, forced to do public penance in front of St. Paul's Cathedral, and temporarily locked up in Bedlam Hospital on charges of insanity. Mary eventually married a male friend, which shielded him from legal persecution. He survived to the age of 75. In 1628, women in Japan were banned from performing in kabuki theater. Their roles were taken by adolescent boys, known as wakashu. Kabuki's highly stylized nature with elaborate costumes and heavy makeup lent itself well to gender illusion. And the racy plays got spectators in the mood. Actors often engaged in sex work with both male and female clients. Brawls frequently broke out in the audience over the favors of popular actors. This led to the shogunate temporarily banning women's roles in kabuki altogether. But theater with no romance was pretty boring, so the ban didn't last. In 1673, women were once again allowed to perform on stage, but the tradition of drag in kabuki theater lives on today. Back in England, the growing Puritan movement was strongly against theater altogether. In 1642, in the midst of the Civil War, Parliament shuttered all the theaters. Puritans who thought the government wasn't strict enough set sail for America. By 1661, the people had gotten tired of the puritanical regime, and they invited Charles II to restore the monarchy. He had spent his youth in exile at the court of his cousin, Louis XIV, and had seen many women perform on stage. So, when Charles reopened the theaters, he also lifted the ban on actresses. The king was a keen patron of the theater. Two of his mistresses, Nell Gwynne and Maul Davis, were actresses. Now that women could tread the boards, there would never again be a need for men to dress in drag. 
But that didn't happen. Drag continued because it serves many other important purposes, including self-expression and subverting traditional gender norms. In fact, the stage door swung far the other way. During the Restoration, there was a vogue for women to wear men's clothes. Even ladies of the court, including Queen Catherine of Braganza, wore men's fashions and strutted around with walking sticks. On stage, actresses often took on male comic roles, particularly rakes and lotharios. The character of Macheath in The Beggar's Opera was played by an actress. In the early 1600s, opera emerged in the courts of Italy. This included the papal court, where women were still banned, and castrati sang the high notes, often in dresses and wigs. As opera went mainstream, the demand for castrati increased. By the 1700s, an Italian opera not featuring at least one castrato in a lead role was doomed to fail. The practice had technically been banned in 1587, but the possibility of an illustrious career meant that the guardians of many young boys with promising voices subjected them to mutilation. It was common for boys to die under the primitive anesthesia used to sedate them for the operation. Most never achieved fame, but a few, like Farinelli and Scalzi, became superstars. By the 1800s, social attitudes and tastes had changed. Castrati fell out of fashion and the dangerous practice died out. Alessandro Moreschi was the last of the Sistine Chapel Castrati, and in 1902, he became the only one ever recorded. In 1732, England's first recorded drag queen, Princess Serafina, entered the history books when she sued one Thomas Gordon for stealing her clothes at knife point. The case garnered great public interest. Serafina's friends, who served as witnesses, referred to her as Her Majesty with feminine pronouns. Gordon's defense was that Serafina was gay. He outed her in court and exposed her as a sex worker in London's underground gay clubs, known as Molly Houses. At the time, the punishment was execution. Fortunately, Princess Serafina was not prosecuted, but Gordon also got away with assaulting her. In 1869 in Harlem, New York, Hamilton Lodge began holding masquerade balls. Gay men and gender nonconforming people flocked to the secret gatherings, where they could express themselves freely and dance in satin and silk dresses. A moral reform committee known as the 14 frequently attended the events so that they could report on the outrageous behavior they witnessed. William Dorsey Swan was born into slavery in Maryland in 1860. In the 1880s, he organized underground drag balls in Washington, D.C. William's persona was the queen of drag, which is how the term drag queen was born. 
the queen performed dances like the cakewalk, which mimicked the mannerisms of plantation owners and would later evolve into voguing. His 30th birthday ball was raided by police, and the queen was arrested. He resisted and told officers, you is no gentleman. This is considered one of the first acts of violent resistance in the name of gay rights. He petitioned President Grover Cleveland for a pardon, but was denied, making him the first American on record to pursue political action for LGBTQ rights. Swan continued his activism until his death in 1925 at the age of 65. After he died, local officials burned down his house. During the California Gold Rush, the Barbary Coast district of San Francisco was known for saloons such as the Dash, which featured attractive female impersonators. In Victorian England, a time famous for its sexual repression, drag still had an important role in popular music halls. It was considered too subversive to sexualize older women, so having them played by men as comic relief neutralized them. And in romantic plays, seeing young and good-looking men and women kissing was too risque, so leading men were often played by women in what were termed breeches roles. Superstar Sarah Bernhard played Hamlet to much acclaim in 1899. Drag king Vesta Tilly became a star for her male impersonation. Young and vulnerable male roles were often played by women. There is a long tradition of casting a woman as Peter Pan. Even in 2014, an NBC broadcast starred Alison Williams. In 1870, the case of Fanny and Stella made headlines. They were arrested in drag while leaving a London theater and charged on conspiracy to commit buggery, which carried a maximum sentence of life with hard labor. Fanny and Stella were acquitted on lack of evidence, but authorities were so frustrated that they passed the 1885 La Boucher Amendment, which labeled all male homosexual activity as gross indecency. The act was used to prosecute thousands, including playwright Oscar Wilde and computer science pioneer Alan Turing. In 1930, King George V's son, Prince George, Duke of Kent, was arrested while in drag with his friend and possible lover, Noel Coward. But once the police realized they'd arrested a prince, the story was hushed up. La Boucher was finally overturned in 1967. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution, is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. 
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In the U.S., vaudeville emerged as the leading form of entertainment. These variety shows featured short dramatic plays, comic sketches, singing, dancing, magicians, and a lot of drag. My great-grandmother, Florence Cooper, was a vaudevillian in the early 1900s. She and her sisters, Abby and Marie, performed as the Cooper sisters. I have a photograph of them dressed as soldiers, and another in which they are dressed as courting gentlemen, while three male performers are dressed as brides. From vaudeville emerged the first drag queen superstar, Julian Eltinge. He made his first appearance on Broadway in 1904. He ditched slapstick and impressed the audience with his realistic female impersonation. Julian became a fashion icon for women. He toured the U.S. and Europe and gave a command performance to King Edward VII. In 1917, Hollywood beckoned, and Julian appeared in The Countess Charming and other films. In the early 20s, he was the highest-paid performer in America. At the time, Ivy League universities did not admit women, so their drama clubs like Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals, Princeton's Triangle Club, and Penn's Mask and Wig Club routinely cast young men in slapstick female roles. These same upper-class men were scandalized by the emerging drag scene in New York City, where rouged queens like Princess Toto, Maggie Vickers, and Phoebe Pinafore danced the can-can to a ragtime piano at bars like The Slide. When Prohibition pushed liquor underground in 1920, drag went with it. LGBTQ culture thrived in big cities where police weren't interested in enforcing the unpopular law. During the pansy craze, bootlegged moonshine brought all kinds of people together in illegal speakeasies. Bert Savoy cut a large and brassy figure with her signature red wig and wide-brimmed hat. She and other drag queens were friend and inspiration to upcoming actress Mae West. Mae made it big in Hollywood with her husky voice and risque double entendres. She was an early activist for gay rights and would be an inspiration to drag performers for generations to come. White audiences flocked to Harlem's Jungle Alley to hear the hot new sound, jazz. Jazz brought drag and music together like never before. Langston Hughes described tourists purchasing box seats from which they looked down on the queerly assorted throngs on the dance floor, males in flowing gowns and feather headdresses, and females in tuxedos. 
Harlem drag focused on fashion, beauty, and realness. Drag king Gladys Bentley sang and danced in a white top hat and tails, backed by a chorus line of drag queens. The 1933 repeal of prohibition made it harder for queer people to meet in public. Because bars and clubs needed liquor licenses, the government was now free to create and enforce morality codes. In 1934, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia banned drag between 14th and 72nd Streets. Clubs were frequently raided by police, and people were arrested for wearing three or more items of clothing not associated with the sex on their ID. The party continued in Germany, where drag was a big part of Berlin's cabaret scene. German actress Marlene Dietrich made a splash in Hollywood, performing as both a man and a woman. In 1933, the musical comedy Victor und Victoria, about a woman pretending to be a female impersonator, was a hit. Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld opened the Institute of Sex Research in Berlin, and transgender people with means came from around the world for his cutting-edge hormone therapies. But when the Nazis came into power, the institute was destroyed, and thousands of LGBTQ people were murdered in concentration camps. But drag endured and flourished where it could. In the 30s and 40s, drag often focused on impersonating glamorous Hollywood stars like Elizabeth Taylor and Judy Garland, both of whom were in turn fans of drag and frequented Club 82 in downtown New York. Judy and her character Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz were iconic, and asking, are you a friend of Dorothy, became a coded way to inquire if someone was gay. Many other forms of signaling, including ear piercing and color-coded handkerchiefs, emerged to help queer people communicate under the suspicious gaze of the law. After World War II, heteronormative culture intensified. Some in the U.S. government feared that homosexuals were more likely to be communists. During the Lavender Scare, thousands were fired from government jobs, and queer culture was forced deeper in the closet. In Hollywood, performers including Rock Hudson, Robert Taylor, Barbara Stanwyck, and probably many others had lavender marriages in order to hide their orientation. Exposure meant being blacklisted and never working again. This atmosphere gave rise to many coded characters, like Mr. Humphreys from the British comedy Are You Being Served, and personas like Paul Lind, who most people understood were gay but couldn't come out and say it. Florence Cooper's son and my own great uncle, Billy D. Wolf, was one such actor. He had a long career playing a prototype gay best friend to the likes of Doris Day, but he was never able to be open about his personal life. Drag occasionally appeared in mainstream media, but was usually a punchline as in 1959's Some Like It Hot, or vilified as in 1960's Psycho. Some drag performers still managed to have successful careers. The Jewel Box Review played Harlem's Apollo Theater and toured the country. One of its stars, Lynn Carter, recorded an album called She's a He and became the first drag artist to perform at Carnegie Hall. In 1968, two important films documented drag culture. 
the queen followed the drama backstage at the Miss All-America Camp Beauty Contest in New York City, including Crystal LaBeija's frustration that despite being just as beautiful and talented, she always lost out to white queens. The Andy Warhol joint, Flesh, introduced Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling, whom Lou Reed sang about in the 1972 song, Walk on the Wild Side. Jackie Curtis created the Theater of the Ridiculous, which featured hyper-real, over-the-top comic drag performances. Police raids on gay bars continued. Officers frequently harassed and assaulted drag queens, even dunking their heads in mop buckets before hauling them off to jail. In the early morning of June 28, 1969, patrons at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village fought back. Queen Marsha P. Johnson, King Stormy Dulavari, and many others rioted for their right to exist. Thus, the gay liberation movement was born. On the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, the first gay pride marches were organized in New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. Pride events have since spread around the world and are often celebrated in June. In the UK, drag never stopped being part of mainstream theater, though it was relegated to comic relief. Pantomime, performed at Christmas for Children, traditionally featured dames, played by men in drag, while principal boys like Prince Charming and Dick Whittington were played by women. Danny LaRue's celebrity impersonations made him one of Britain's highest paid entertainers. Edna Everidge burst on the scene in Australia in 1955 to poke fun at boring conservative suburbia. The character rose to international fame and, in 1974, Edna was awarded Commander of the British Empire, making her Dame Edna. In the 1970s, popular sketch comedy troupe Monty Python performed in drag regularly. In 1984, members of the band Queen dressed as characters from the popular British soap opera Coronation Street. For the music video, I Want to Break Free, singer Freddie Mercury was encouraged not to shave his mustache because it made the scene funnier. The video was a hit in the UK, but American audiences considered it offensive and it was banned. David Bowie had better luck with androgynous glam rock, which was heavily influenced by, but not actually categorized as drag. In the US, drag flourished in alternative culture. Performers in San Francisco were influenced by the hippie movement. Glam and punk rockers like the New York Dolls, the Velvet Underground, and the Stooges were influenced by drag. Wayne County of the Electric Chairs performed as a campy, foul-mouthed drag queen. The band went on tour with opening act The Police, who would later shoot to international fame. In the 80s, Wayne transitioned and changed her name to Jane. In 1972, director John Waters made drag queen Divine a star in his midnight movie hit, Pink Flamingos. The grotesque film was billed as one of the most disgusting pictures ever made, and people lined up to see it. Divine went on to star in the 1988 comedy Hairspray and inspire Ursula in Disney's The Little Mermaid. The 1975 cult classic Rocky Horror Picture Show featured a glammed-up Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter. In 1979, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were formed in Iowa City and then moved to San Francisco. They dress as dragged-up Catholic nuns to raise money and protest for LGBTQ issues. 
the 1982 remake of Victor Victoria with superstar Julie Andrews won critical praise and Oscar nods. In Japan in the 80s, visual key emerged in popular music and culture. Performers wear elaborate costumes, hairstyles, and makeup, including partial or full drag. In the late 80s, early 90s, two distinct drag cultures emerged in New York City. In Uptown, the ballroom scene became a haven for Black and Latinx LGBTQ people who were tired of being passed over for awards at white-dominated pageants. Crystal LaBeja from The Queen became the mother of the House of LaBeja. The houses of Milan, Cory Extravaganza, and others gave support and a literal home to gay and trans youth, many of whom had been kicked out by their parents. Houses walked or competed together in categories, which emphasized beauty, high fashion, and realness. A distinct dance style called pop, dip, and spin based on breakdancing evolved into posing and voguing, named after the fashion magazine. Madonna's 1990 hit, Vogue, featured performers from the ballroom scene. Ballroom was documented in the 1990 film, Paris is Burning. During the HIV crisis, the house system supported people through devastation and rising social stigma. The House of Latex was formed to promote safe sex education. Downtown, drag experienced a revival, influenced by punk rock. There, the style was gritty, thrift store, and focused on body comedy and lip-syncing to records. Charles Bush staged plays including Psycho Beach Party and Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. Drag queens including Linda Simpson, Hedda Lettuce, and Mistress Formica rose to fame. Drag kings including Murray Hill and Moe B. Dick strutted their stuff at Club Casanova. In 1984, Lady Bunny began Wigstock, an annual outdoor drag festival. The first Wigstock was held in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. It continued until 2005 and was then revived in 2018. One of Wigstock's regular performers was RuPaul Charles. He became drag's biggest star with the 1993 dance track, Supermodel, You Better Work. Successful albums, a contract with MAC Cosmetics, and the RuPaul show on VH1 followed. In the 90s, drag finally broke into the mainstream with hit films, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, and The Birdcage, which featured more flattering and sympathetic portrayals of drag queens. The two drag queen road trip movies, one from Australia and one from the US, had similar plots, but that was just a coincidence. British stand-up Eddie Izzard strutted the stage in heels and makeup and talked openly about identity and attraction. In 2019, she came out as gender fluid and now goes by the name Susie Eddie Izzard. But men dressing as women was still frequently used as a punchline in hit movies like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire and popular TV shows including In Living Color, Martin, Saturday Night Live, Kids in the Hall, and Little Britain. Now that audiences have become more sophisticated about feminism and gender identity, there is a lot of debate about if these tropes are offensive to women and LGBTQ people. 
popular 2003 sketch comedy Little Britain often featured drag characters in the long-running style of British comedy, but the show has since been criticized for its negative portrayals of women, people of color, and transgender people. Its creators, David Walliams and Matt Lucas, have apologized, and many offensive sketches have been removed from streaming services. This punching down comic relief style of drag, mostly performed by straight, cisgender men in a male-dominated industry, has largely fallen out of favor. Though Tyler Perry is still making Medea movies, which are criticized for perpetuating negative stereotypes about black women. But drag as an expression of gender exploration and nonconformity, which comes from and empowers marginalized groups, is now more popular than ever. In 2009, RuPaul's Drag Race premiered. The reality competition series brought the best drag queens of America into living rooms across the world. In addition to highlighting their talents, it also humanized the performers and featured conversations about gender identity, HIV, mental health, and relationships. Drag Race is now in its 15th season and has launched spin-offs and numerous international versions. The show's popularity has had an immeasurable effect on the LGBTQ rights movement and helped many straight and cisgender people relate to the community and become allies. Drag Race has faced criticism on some fronts, including for not featuring drag kings, who still have far fewer opportunities in the entertainment industry. Drag Race contestants including Trixie Mattel, Bianca Del Rio, Shangela, Bob the Drag Queen, Jinx Monsoon, and so many others have shot to international fame with record deals, comedy specials, and live performances. Drag shows have become popular for people in all walks of life, and drag is now a bigger part of entertainment than it has ever been. More LGBTQ performers, writers, and producers are out than ever before, and as a result, positive queer representation in entertainment has skyrocketed. Drag has even revisited its roots with all-female and non-binary troops performing Shakespeare. But as always, there is backlash. In the U.S., bills targeting drag performances and transgender youth are on the rise. Media fearmongers have spread false information and incited vigilantes to show up at drag shows with guns and threaten performers and patrons. In 2022, five people were killed and 25 injured at a shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. That's why I'm donating profits from this video to the National Center for Transgender Equality. This organization tackles discrimination and advocates for changing the policies which are threatening the lives of LGBTQ youth. If you would like to join me in making a donation, please click on the link below the video. Drag has been an important part of history for thousands of years and will continue to be fabulous for eons to come. Now that I'm home from London, I've been thinking a lot about my next historic trip, and I'd love to bring you along with me so we can talk about history together in person. Perhaps we'll explore the picturesque castles of Germany or the rugged Scottish Highlands, or venture through ancient ruins in Greece or Istanbul. If you're interested in traveling with me in 2024, please take the survey linked in the description for more information and to help me decide where we'll go. 
You can now follow History Tea Time on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.